everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. It's going to be an interesting episode. Yes, absolutely. What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we are watching the 1941 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a remake of the 1931 version, which is currently the number one movie on the Scream Scene playlist and has been for like 60-something episodes now. Since 1931. Yes. So for 10 years. Yes. <laughs> so this this 1941 version, all I really know about it is that it stars Spencer Tracy, mm-hmm. and this is the point where Jekyll and Hyde becomes Jekyll and Hyde. That's right, because um, Jekyll is the proper... I want to say it's a Scottish last name. Well, the author is Scottish, so probably. Um, But that's like the proper pronunciation. And then, because Spencer Tracy played the role in this movie, and he doesn't do anything to disguise like his American accent, like he just talks the way... Spencer Tracy talks. Exactly. Uh, It gets Americanized to Jekyll. And then from here on out, it's it's basically always Jekyll. So, as we've kind of already alluded to, had a lot of experience with the story of Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, we've had, I think, four? Yes, we've had four adaptations. There are four Jekyll and Hydes on the list. Yes. So, why don't we start back at the beginning and kind of trace the story's evolution up to this point? Because I think it's fair to say that it's changed through the course of those adaptations. Yeah, so let's rewind time. The novel The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was published in 1886 by Scottish writer Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson lived from 1850 to 1894, and that's about as much time on this episode of a Jekyll and Hyde movie that I'm going to be talking about him. I go into quite a lot of detail in our last Jekyll and Hyde episode um, that on the 1931 one. That's episode 27. So go listen to that if you want to hear more about Robert Louis Stevenson. So let me tell you what the plot's about. Sure. So it is set up to be a mystery. It has some kind of like gothic elements to it, but it's definitely a mystery type novel. Penny Dreadful also. Um, So the story begins with some gossip going around about a Mr. Hyde who ran down a kid with their friend, Dr. Jekyll, covering it up and paying off the family. Further, Dr. Jekyll has changed his will to Mr. Hyde. So, kind of our main character of the story, Mr. Utterson, he's worried that Hyde is blackmailing Jekyll. So he wants to investigate and you know, offer help to Jekyll. Before he gets to there, um, Hyde kills a man with Jekyll's cane. Um, he ends up killing Sir Danvers Carew, a friend of Jekyll's, but also a client of Utterson's. And a member of Parliament, too, right? Yes. Yeah. And Hyde is now nowhere to be found. The police can't find him. 
Chico, after this event, you know, he starts going out a bit more. He kind of returns to his normal social activities for a short time. One friend of theirs, a Dr. Lanyon, seems to kind of deteriorate and then die. And he leaves a letter to Utterson um, with explicit instructions not to open it until Jekyll has disappeared or has died. You know, kind of mysterious circumstances going on. So Utterson really wants to get to the bottom of this. Because he's been snooping around, Jekyll's butler, Mr. Poole, goes to Utterson and says, you know, Jekyll's been holed up in his laboratory for nearly a week and won't come out. Can you come check out what's going on? They burst in and they see Jekyll dead at the desk in Hyde's clothes. Dead as the result of an apparent suicide. And there's a note for Utterson. So between Lanyon's letter and Jekyll's letter to Utterson, he's able to put together the rest of the story. And that is that Jekyll is Hyde. Jekyll drinks a serum to turn into Hyde and indulge in vices without being found out. Kind of the result of this serum is, you know, Jekyll, who is just a regular person, just a regular scientist, lets out kind of what's known as his evil side. Hyde is self-indulgent, very selfish, really only caring about himself. Um, so you could say that's evil, like a pure evil side. Yeah, I mean... But he's not, like, laughing maniacally about, like, I don't know. Sure. Like, releasing poison into the town's water supply. Right. I think the um, equivalency of, like, evil with selfishness fits the um, Dungeons and Dragons definitions of good and evil, as I recall. <laughs> but, anyways. These transformations were controlled through drinking a serum to turn into Hyde and turn back to Jekyll. But one night, Jekyll's asleep, and he wakes up as Hyde. At that point, Jekyll stopped drinking the serums. Just he, he got too spooked out. But, you know, he got bored, and after a long period, he drank the serum, turned into Hyde, and Hyde, finally being released, ended up killing Carew. At one point, Jekyll transforms while he's awake, and away from his laboratory. Now, since Hyde is being sought by the police, he can't really go to his laboratory and and get the serum to turn back, so this is when he contacts Lanyon, asks for him to bring the supplies to this place. Lanyon witnesses Hyde turning into Jekyll, and that sparks his health deteriorating and eventually dying. Jekyll continued to transform involuntarily, and eventually realized that at this rate he'd become Hyde permanently. So he wrote this confession for Utterson, and then committed suicide. And the novel ends with the quote, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. Now at this point, I feel like, just for some context around this story, um, I give this in episode 27 as well, but this is kind of a summarized version of the Victorian era. Right. <laughs> um, the Victorian era is kind of seen to be from 1837 to 1901, and it featured a resurgence of Gothic literature. So you can kind of see that with this mystery novel, with Dracula in 1897, and Dorian Gray in 1891. There's also kind of, which I can see going hand in hand with Gothic literature, a turn towards valuing capital R romanticism over rationalism. Mm. So feelings kind of making more of a resurgence rather than just like 
reason. Mm -hmm. That's a very much an oversimplification, but just trying to get the broad strokes here. It's also at this time that England's colonialism increases, leading to England's wealth increasing. The middle class especially increases in wealth, you know, the merchant class. Um, and so the traditionally upper class classes, people... The nobility? Yeah, whatever. They needed a new way to kind of differentiate themselves since wealth was no longer a signifier. And that's when we get some strict moral codes and um, morality becoming linked with sexuality. Sure. Because it's the lower classes that fuck. Yeah, this is, you know, I mean, this is sort of a simplification, but this is the idea of acting like a gentleman in a very literal meaning, like, of the word gentleman, meaning, you know, gentry. Exactly. Um, They have to reestablish why, just why, they're better than the rest of us. Yes, exactly. What's kind of interesting is Jekyll and Hyde, when it was first published, was a penny dreadful, which, like... Not supposed to read those. Yeah, those are for the lower class. Yeah. So it didn't sell very well. It wasn't very well stocked in bookstores until a favorable review. And then suddenly everyone wanted to get their hands on it. And about 40,000 copies were sold in the next six months. A copy eventually found its way to a Richard Mansfield, an English actor slash producer working in the United States. Richard Mansfield had been acting in Britain since 1879, making his London debut in 1881, and with some mild successes under his belt, he traveled to America in 1882, having a Broadway debut with the (laughs) Doily Cart Touring Company. Four years later, in 1886, he joined the A.M. Palmer's Union Square Theatre Company. When reading Jekyll and Hyde, Mansfield was very interested with the idea of playing a dual role. Mm -hmm. So he secured the rights for a stage version in the United States and the UK and asked his writer friend Thomas Russell Sullivan to adapt it. Sullivan was a Boston writer born in 1849, and he would write in his spare time while working at an investment bank. Okay. His first novel was Roses of Shadow, published in 1885, and through some mutual friends, he became acquainted with Richard Mansfield. In writing the 1887 stage adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, Sullivan added a romance subplot with a fiancé for Jekyll, and a stronger moral contrast between Jekyll and Hyde. Right. Jekyll now becoming a paragon of virtue, and Hyde is a sexual deviant. Yeah, whereas like in the book... Like, the book was more just about, like, sort of the hypocrisy of, like, the upper classes presenting themselves as being good. But, like, Jekyll's just a dude, and he just becomes Hyde to, like, indulge himself in, like, stuff he would have already done anyways if it wasn't for his reputation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Stevenson actually really disliked this change. He saw both Jekyll and Hyde as just, like, regular dudes, Hyde just being, like, incredibly selfish. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually has this quote of Hyde being no more sexual than any other person. Yeah. So, while Stevenson didn't like it, the audiences loved it! Mm -hmm. The play toured Boston to Broadway and eventually the Lyceum Theater by invitation of Henry Irving. Yes. 
The play's success encouraged Sullivan to quit his bank job and write full-time. He had mild success through the years. And Mansfield's career skyrocketed. Yeah. He went... What's that phrase? Skyrocketed to fame? Sure. That's him. His depiction of Jekyll, Paragon of Virtue, and Hyde, Sexual Deviant, was so good that it actually led to him being a suspect in the 1888 Jack the Ripper murders. Yes, because people have a very hard time separating actors from the roles they play. Yeah. But he was that good. Mm -hmm. The play ran across the U.S. and the U.K. for 20 years, with Mansfield playing the lead until his death in 1907. So while the original novel has its own kind of characterizations, and um, Stevenson himself has his own opinions of who Jekyll and Hyde are supposed to be, Mansfield and Sullivan's version became the more memorable. So, like you said at the top, we've seen four adaptations. Yes. Um, Lucius Henderson's version from 1912 starring James Cruz. You can hear about that in episode one. It's ranked number 64. It was okay. Herbert Brennan's 1913 version starring King Baggett. You can hear about that in episode one. It's ranked number 75. It was not good. John Robertson's 1920 version starring John Barrymore, episode six, ranked 58. It was okay. And Ruben Mamoulian's 1931 starring Frederick March. Which, um... Is episode 27 and is a number one on the list. Yeah, we really liked it. Oh, it's good. (laughs) To kind of go through these films chronologically and just, like, briefly mention some of the big things we really noted about it, with the 1912 version starring James Cruz, it was, like, blatant in that Jekyll commits suicide at the end. Right, right. Um, And it also established that Carew had a daughter. Yeah, it it connected the idea that um, the guy he murders in the book, Carew is the father of the fiancé love interest, right? Yeah. Yeah. In 1913, starring King Baggett, um, it did the worst out of the four. It's honestly not that great. Sorry, King Baggett fans. He, when he transforms into Hyde, he really just jumps at people. He's not terrifying at all. But this was the point where we could see a lot of themes about alcoholism and addiction coming in. That's right. So that was the one notable thing about that one. The 1920 version, starring John Barrymore. We'd kind of seen the adaptations equate good to good-looking and bad to bad-looking Yeah, he, in become, the past. he becomes ugly when he becomes Hyde. With John Barrymore's version, it kind of took it to another level, at least for me, because Hyde has a bit of a microcephalic head. It's also where we see Spider Hyde for yes, the first time. that's right. Um, when he turns into Hyde... In, while he's asleep, we get this, like, <laughs> uh, person dressed up as a, sp- like, a little spider crawling towards him. Yeah, um, it was sort of the first time that, like, Hyde, the appearance of Hyde, like, stretched the limits of what you would consider, like, human-looking. Like, he's not just, like, in that version, like, an ugly dude. He sort of is almost, like, a, a literal monster. Yeah, yeah, almost ape-like. One problem we had with the 1920 version is it has this whole side swivel, basically, into the history of this poison ring. Right. (laughs) Um, And it does kind of continue the themes of alcoholism and addiction from the 1913 version. 
1931 version starring Friedrich March. Obviously, we liked this one the most. It's number one. And it really enhances, or at least um, puts on display, Jekyll's critique of the gentry and seeing them as very hypocritical of themselves. Yes. He, Jekyll, talks a lot about, you know, I want, like, why can't we just go rolling down the street. Why can't I associate with lower class people? Why can't I fuck is really like also the that. big one. Like the 31 <laughs> version I think really made the sexual motivation really um prominent. Yes, and and sort of it did a really clever thing in putting Jekyll in the right because he really just wants to be able to have sex with the woman he loves, but he can't because they're not married yet and like he the marriage is like scheduled for a long time away or whatever. So the whole deal is like he becomes the idea is that like he wanted to be able to indulge in these feelings without guilt or whatever, right? Yeah. Um and the shift from my reputation to assuage my guilt about it is really important with this adaptation compared to the other versions. Yeah, Jekyll's a good man who has these urges that he's not allowed to act upon, so he creates this alternate identity, as opposed to Jekyll's a shitty dude who wants a cover for his shittiness. Yeah, in a Dorian Gray type of way. Exactly. Um, And kind of a, a quote that I think sums up this from the 1931 version is, Jekyll comes with, up with this theory of if we can kind of separate ourselves... Um, the good can achieve higher, and the bad can be sated. Yes. You know, we can continue, like, reaching and growing and progressing. I think one of the other things that it's worth saying about the 31 version that it introduced was, in addition to the fiancé for Jekyll, a bad girl love interest for Hyde that was a major addition to the story with the 1931 version. Yes, the other, thank you, Ben, I had forgotten to talk about this. While um, Carew does get murdered by Hyde in the 1931, um, the bigger murder, the more prominent murder, is that of Ivy, Hyde's love interest. Yeah. Um, he's on the run because of that. Um, honestly, Carew, you know, still gets killed by the cane and everything, and that's how it connects to Jekyll, um, but he's already on the run from the police because of Ivy's murder. Yeah, and Hyde's treatment of Ivy, who is a sex worker, is a big part of his storyline in that version, because not only then do we have the themes of um, addiction and alcohol use that were introduced in previous adaptations, but we also now have identifications of how those things lead into situations like domestic abuse Mm -hmm. um, because Hyde's relationship with Ivy was portrayed very uh, much as an abusive relationship. Yeah. How much empathy goes out to Ivy as well um, is really striking. Yeah. Her her storyline is really like the heart of that movie, I would say. Yeah. And so that that's really the part of the 1931 movie that becomes difficult post-code. When classic movies get remade, I feel like you often hear people saying like, oh, why are they bothering to remake that? The first one was so good, or whatever. And I feel like people ask that question as like a rhetorical, like, oh, it's obviously a bad idea to remake it. But I feel like it's often interesting to actually find the answer. You know, okay, why did they then, Mm -hmm. if the original is so good? So... 
One of the effects of the enforcement of the production code from 1934 onwards was a rise in the production of remakes. And the reason for this is um, back before home video, theatrical re-releases were a key part of the financial plan of movie studios, with uh, many classic films not really becoming profitable until their maybe second or third releases. Um, Certainly that was the case with a lot of Disney films. Uh, The Wizard of Oz is another famous case of that. But the code meant that re-releasing pre-code material was difficult. Some films, uh, like Frankenstein, for instance, were able to be re-released with cuts. But a film like 1931's The Maltese Falcon had to be completely remade, which led to the 1941 version with Humphrey Bogart that everyone knows. So you had this trend of remaking pre-code movies so that you could have them in a post-code version. Paramount's 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was one of those movies that had these significant re-release problems. Uh, The studio did re-release it in 1936, and when that happened, the code cut eight minutes out of the movie, uh, primarily from actress Miriam Hopkins' scenes. Uh, She played Ivy Pearson, uh, the sex worker character. And those cuts rendered her character's plotline very difficult to follow and ended up making the re-release not very successful. So the idea of remaking this highly acclaimed film, uh, which had won its star Frederick March and Oscar for Best Actor, I will remind you, was not entirely a crazy idea. What was strange was that uh, it wasn't the original studio, Paramount, that wanted to remake the film, but rather Hollywood's most powerful and glamorous studio, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. So the last MGM movie we covered for the list was 1936's The Devil Doll, uh, the second last film of studio contract director Todd Browning. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in the 1930s practically was Hollywood. Uh, It had the biggest stars, it had the most lavish budgets, and had a distinct focus on glamour and sophistication. The studio produced approximately 50 pictures a year, uh, which meant a new release every nine days. They had Dang. a yeah, they had a goal to make it to weekly releases, but they never quite got there. Instead, only a week and a half. Yeah, the studio dominated the box office. It became the only Hollywood studio to not lose any money during the Great Depression. <laughs> Uh, Indeed, MGM never had an unprofitable year until the mid-1950s. After the death of head of production Irving Thalberg in 1936, studio co-founder Louis B. Mayer became both head of production and studio chief executive, which made him the first million-dollar executive in America. Under his auspices, the studio scored box office gold by exploiting its stable of top movie stars— Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, Joan Crawford, Norma Shear, Greta Garbo, Gene Harlow, Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, Andy Rooney, etc. In deciding to remake Jekyll and Hyde, Louis B. Mayer also decided that one of the studio's top stars, Spencer Tracy, was perfect for the part, even if the actor himself highly disagreed. <laughs> Tracy was born in 1900 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Despite a hyperactive nature that led him to frequently skip out on schoolwork in favor of going to the movies, 
A desire to please his father led Tracy to enroll in medicine at Ripon College in 1921. There, he was part of the debate club and excelled in public speaking. During a tour with his debate team, Tracy auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, which (laughs) then offered him a scholarship, so he switched schools in 1922 and graduated from the AADA in 1923. Only a single year? Yeah, he apparently moved very quickly through the classes and was, like, bumped up through the course and, like, because he was a... Uh, so talented. Dang. He began acting on stage, uh, achieving his first major hits with his collaborations with playwright George M. Cohen. In 1930, his portrayal of a death row inmate in The Last Mile saw him scouted by a Hollywood desperate for stage actors during the transition to talkies. Director John Ford cast Spencer Tracy in the Fox film Up the River in 1930, And Fox was so impressed, they offered Tracy a contract, which he eagerly accepted due to the need to support his struggling family. Tracy's wife, actress Louise Treadwell, uh, had given birth to a son, John, in 1924. John was born deaf and later suffered from polio. The Catholic Tracy was ridden with guilt as he believed that his son's illnesses were God's punishments Uh, upon him for Tracy's sins. Uh, So he basically believed that it was his fault. His son was was deaf and and had polio and stuff. Despite the birth of a daughter in 1932, Tracy was unable to bear staying with his family just because of how guilty he felt and separated from his wife on amicable terms in 1933. They never divorced, however. Mm -hmm. Tracy suffered from depression and anxiety, and was plagued with insomnia. He self-medicated with alcohol, developing an alcoholism problem that manifested not as steady drinking, but as binge periods, followed by long stretches of sobriety. Tracy was something of a nasty drunk, and was twice arrested for his behavior while intoxicated, and his guilt over this behavior propelled his all-or-nothing cycles of sobriety and binging. Tracy worked under contract with Fox for five years, appearing as the leading man in 25 films, which, despite good critical notices, got little public notice and were often financially unsuccessful. Tracy's alcoholism worsened, and he went on a two-week drinking binge instead of reporting to work on the film Marie Galante. When the studio finally found him, they hospitalized him and then sued him for $125,000 for delaying production. At the time, MGM was looking for new male leads, and so Fox arranged to terminate Tracy's contract and hand him over to MGM for a seven-year deal. Basically trying to play it like, oh yeah, this guy gets tons of critical, like, acclaim, and is, like, a clearly a super talented actor. Just don't ask where he is right now at (laughs) this moment. Yeah, and, you know, get him off our hands, please. The studio bosses at MGM, such as Irving Thalberg, knew that Tracy could be a great actor, but needed to be heavily managed. They built up his reputation by pairing him with the studio's top actresses, and a pair of successes, 1936's Fury and 1937's San Francisco, finally made him a major star. For his role as a priest in San Francisco, Tracy was nominated for his first Oscar. Following these successes, he entered a period of sobriety and professionalism. 
He continued to find success with hits like Captain's Courageous, for which he won his first Oscar, and Boys Town. His... That town's full of boys! Boys Town! His role as Catholic priest Father Flanagan in Boys Town won Tracy his second Oscar. He would reprise this role in the 1941 sequel, Men of Boys Town. <laughs> Them boys are men now. Men Town. When, when was Boys to Men popular? Like the 90s? Like 50 years later? Um, the movies are about, like, this Catholic priest who starts up, like, uh, a home for, like, orphaned, like, street kids in New York. They call it Boys Town. Exactly. Also in 1941... Tracy renewed his contract with MGM to a salary of $5,000 a week and a limit of three pictures a year, as Tracy found that he needed to avoid heavy workload for the sake of his mental health. And then he was cast as the lead in Jekyll and Hyde. Tracy strenuously objected to this. For one thing, Spencer Tracy's acting style was based on naturalism. Mm -hmm. Um, he sort of considered his style of acting to not be acting, but rather just sort of listening and reacting in the moment. Quite famously, he wasn't really good after more than like two takes because what made his acting good was the initial spontaneity. He felt therefore that he was ill-suited to a part that required a degree of artificiality and exaggeration. For another point, he had no desire to perform under makeup. Uh, which he felt was also against his naturalist performance style. Do you, by makeup, would that be different than like the usual makeup? Yeah, like the hide makeup, so, like the okay, special so effects you mean, makeup. You mean like a costume then? Yes. What convinced Tracy to take the role was the director assigned to the film, Victor Fleming, who had directed Tracy in Captain's Courageous and Test Pilot. Fleming was one of MGM's top directors at this time. He had served as a photographer in World War I and was U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's chief photographer. He became a cinematographer and worked under D.W. Griffith, becoming a director in 1919. He joined MGM in 1932 and scored the biggest hits of his career in 1939 with The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind was the most successful film ever made up to that point, grossing $32 million, and adjusted for inflation, it is still the most profitable movie of all time at $3.7 billion. Wow. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was Fleming's next film. Ooh. So Gone with the Wind was 39, so he basically got to have, like, a break. Yeah. Yeah. So... Because of the success of the 1931 version of Jekyll and Hyde and the key differences between that film's screenplay and the public domain novel, namely the introduction of the good and evil love interests for Jekyll and Hyde, MGM thought it would be wiser to just purchase the rights to the Paramount version outright to head off any risk of Paramount suing for copyright infringement if they decided to use elements that they wanted to use, like the character of Ivy. So, with the difficulties of re-releasing the 1931 version in the postcode era apparent, Paramount was happy to agree, believing that the film had no further use to them. So MGM just bought the rights to that film and its screenplay and everything else lock, stock, and barrel so they could make this remake. Tracy wished for there to be big changes to the film's premise to take advantage of his style and avoid makeup, as well as distance his version of the character from Frederick March. 
In Tracy's version, there would be no potion. Rather, Hyde would merely be a pseudonym that Jekyll used, or rather, Jekyll, uh, since we're now into Spencer Tracy playing the role. Hyde would be merely a pseudonym that Jekyll used when he went to sort of the rougher, scummier parts of town to drink and indulge his vices, and any of his nastier behaviors would simply be the result of his drinking. That's cool that Tracy is that open about playing a character who would presumably have the same issues with alcohol as he does. Mm -hmm. Tracy also wanted Catherine Hepburn, who he had not yet worked with or met at this point, to play both the good girl and bad girl (laughs) love interests, and then have it be revealed that they were the same person at the end of the film. What? So... While Victor Fleming had brought his favorite screenwriter, John Lee Mayen, aboard to pen the new script, MGM had spent $1.25 million to acquire all rights to the 1931 version, and consequently wished to stick pretty close to its screenplay, nixing Tracy's revisionist suggestions. Mayen's primary challenge as the writer would be to adapt the 1931 version script as closely as possible while altering what needed to be changed for the sake of the production code. Basically, his version of the script is a, you know, a, a, a new draft or a rewrite of the 1931 version script. Mm-hmm. The first obvious change was altering the character of Ivy Pearson from a sex worker to a barmaid. Uh, but even then, there was trouble. The first draft that they sent to the Hayes office came back with requests to change the dialogue to eliminate any suggestions of sadism on Hyde's part, uh, or eliminate any suggestions of Hyde raping Ivy. Afraid of comparisons with the 1931 version, once MGM owned that film, they recalled every print of it and had them destroyed. Keeping the negative in their own vaults and having no new prints struck, suppressing the Frederick March version until 1967. That's a real dick move. And even then, the film was not available uncensored in its pre-code version until home video releases in the late 1980s. One area that Tracy did win out in was the area of makeup. While his version of Hyde does use some makeup, it is minimal compared to previous versions, and most of the difference between the two characters is played in the performance and body language. The minimal makeup for the character of Hyde was created by MGM's Jack Dawn, who had created the makeup effects for the characters in The Wizard of Oz. To play the two female leads, Ingrid Bergman and Lana Turner were cast, with Bergman as Jekyll's fiance and Turner as Ivy, much in line with the way that both actresses had been typed to this point in their careers. Ingrid Bergman was born in 1915 in Stockholm, Sweden, She had wanted to be an actress from an early age. Her mother died when she was two, and her father when she was 13, and she was bounced between various aunts and uncles, until she earned a scholarship to the Royal Dramatic Theatre School, and during her first summer break, she was hired by a Swedish film studio, and left school after only one year, at the age of 19, to act in film. She made a dozen films in Sweden, and much to her lifelong regret and guilt, one film in Germany. And in 1937, she married Dr. Peter Lundström, a neurosurgeon. In 1939, 
David O. Selznick paid for Bergman to come to Hollywood to reprise her role in a Hollywood remake of her 1936 Swedish film, Intermezzo. Selznick protected Bergman from Hollywood makeup and publicity departments that sought to alter her looks and name to something more American, uh, similar to what had been done with Rita Hayworth, who, if you don't know, listeners, was born Margarita Carmen Cancino and was very Mexican until they transformed her into a ginger. Instead, Selznick believed that Ingrid Bergman's genuineness and natural good looks would serve to contrast her with the razzle-dazzle of typical Hollywood starlets. Intermezzo was a hit and made Bergman a star in America. She followed this up with the films Adam Had Four Sons and Rage in Heaven, both in 1941. At the time that she made Jekyll and Hyde, her big roles in Casablanca, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Gaslight, Spellbound, Bells of St. Mary's, Notorious, Joan of Arc, Under Capricorn, Anastasia, etc. were still to come, along with the three Academy Awards that lay in her future. Lana Turner was born in 1921 as Julia Jean Turner to a mining family in Idaho. Her father was murdered in 1930, and so she and her mother moved frequently after that, often living in difficult conditions as her mother struggled to maintain work. Her mother developed respiratory problems, and they moved to Los Angeles in 1936 on the advice of her doctor. One day, she skipped school to go to the malt shop and get a Coke. And while she was there, she was spotted by the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter, who asked her if she was interested in being an actress, to which she replied... I'll have to ask my mother. With her mother's permission, she was referred to a talent agent and then did a screen test with director Mervyn Leroy and signed a contract with Warner Brothers for $50 a week in 1937 under the name Lana Turner. In her first film, They Won't Forget, she played a very small role as a teenage murder victim, sort of the person who gets murdered at the start of the movie to incite the rest of the detective story. Mm. However, she won immediate attention due to her form-fitting, bust-enhancing attire in the film. The press dubbed her the Sweater Girl. Turner said that watching herself on screen was profoundly embarrassing, as it was the first time that she became aware of her body and her bust and what they looked like and how people viewed her. Mm. And she really hated the nickname the Sweater Girl. I can really identify with that experience. When Mervyn Leroy moved to MGM, he asked permission to take Turner with him, uh, which Jack Warner agreed to because he thought she'd never amount to anything. Oof. But after starring as a high school flirt in the teen comedy Love Finds Andy Hardy opposite Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland in 1938, Louis B. Mayer decided that Lana Turner was to be Hollywood's next sex symbol. She starred in a series of sexy bad girl roles, moving from teenage to adult roles very quickly. In February of 1940, she shocked the press and worried MGM executives by eloping with band leader Artie Shaw. Four months later, they were divorced, and Turner's resulting abortion was reported in the press as hospitalization for exhaustion thanks to the efforts of MGM fixer Eddie Mannix. In 1940, she starred in the musical Siegfried Girl with Jimmy Stewart, Judy Garland, and Hedy Lamarr. It was with this role that she realized she was actually interested in acting. 
and her performance so impressed MGM that they raised her salary to $1,500 a week. Lana Turner was officially a star. Like Bergman, however, the majority of Lana Turner's career was yet to come at the time she made Jekyll and Hyde. So, Bergman as the innocent fiancé and Turner as the saucy barmaid was right on target. Except for one thing. Bergman wanted to be the bad girl. (laughs) I can't see her as that. She was sick of playing these innocent roles that she'd been playing her whole career and wanted to show off her acting range. David O. Selznick protested, saying that no one would buy it with Bergman's girl-next-door looks, to which Bergman replied, What do you know? You look at me, and you put me in three pictures where you know it's the same part over and over, but I am an actress. (laughs) To her surprise, Victor Fleming loved the idea and agreed to switch the parts. Unknown to Fleming or Bergman, Lana Turner was delighted with this turn of events. While the bad girl part seemed up her alley, upon reading the script, Turner recognized the complexity and acting demands of the part of Ivy, and the 20-year-old actress was afraid that she was not up to the task. She had actually been trying to get Louis B. Mayer to switch the parts when she learned that Bergman and Fleming had already gone and done it. (laughs) So, Spencer Tracy hated shooting. He was convinced he was ill-suited for the part, especially the physical stunt requirements. He was 41 years old, and, um, well, for instance, there's a scene in the movie that has Hyde carrying Ivy up a flight of stairs, and this scene required Ingrid Bergman to be hoisted up on an overhead sling uh, to make it simply appear as if Spencer Tracy was carrying her. Meanwhile, Ingrid Bergman was having the time of her life. (laughs) She loved the part and loved working with Victor Fleming, who she felt got performances out of her that she didn't know she was capable of. For a scene where she was supposed to be hysterical, Bergman couldn't get herself to cry, so Fleming slapped her. And she delivered the performance and ended up falling in love with Victor Fleming during the shoot. (laughs) But her feelings weren't returned. For the experienced director Fleming, she was just another work colleague. Lana Turner had the opposite reaction to Victor Fleming. She hated him and his hands-on approach. Uh, She had had similar difficulties crying during a scene, so Fleming treated her the same way he did Bergman and slapped her across the face. But Turner was furious at that and would not shoot for the rest of the day. Tracy uh, protected Lana Turner from Fleming for the rest of the shoot after that, but she refused to work with Victor Fleming ever again. One last member of the cast I want to highlight in the role of Jekyll's prospective father-in-law is the fascinating character of Donald Crisp. Born in 1882 as George Crisp in London to a low-class laborer family, He would later claim that he had been born in 1880 in Scotland, affecting a Scottish accent through his entire life, and also claiming that his father had been a royal physician to King Edward VII, and that he had an Eton and Oxford education. It was his singing talents on a cruise liner talent show in 1906 that won him his first uh, bit of attention as a performer, and by 1910 he was working as a stage manager and actor in New York. He met and befriended D.W. Griffith, and when Griffith went to California, Crisp went with him. 
He played Ulysses S. Grant in Birth of a Nation, uh, along with other major roles in D.W. Griffith films, and learned how to direct from Griffith, and soon began directing films himself. During the silent film era, he directed and acted in a lot of movies. He racked up 72 directing credits and 172 acting credits over the course of his career. Wow. When talkies came in, he abandoned directing and stuck to acting. According to him, this was because he was sick of dealing with studio bosses. <laughs> he became a much sought-after character actor, uh, performing in dozens of films in this period, winning the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role in How Green Was My Valley in 1942. Most fascinating of all, Crisp became one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood by investing all of his money earned acting into real estate and avoiding a lavish lifestyle. His financial connections won him a place on the advisory board of the Bank of America, one of the leading sources of capital for the film industry. In this role, Crisp ultimately was the voice that the bank's board of directors listened to in regards to what film projects to finance during the golden age of Hollywood. Dang. That's a lot of power. Yep. This is the guy who decides whether your movie got money or not, pretty much. Wow. One person I haven't mentioned yet is the producer of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, the man in charge of the show, Victor Seville. He actually isn't credited in the film itself for a very fascinating reason. Okay. Born in Birmingham, England in 1895, Seville produced and directed numerous successful films for Gainsborough and Gamont British through the 1920s and 30s. In 1938, he left for the U.S. to work with MGM to produce a film adaptation of the novel The Citadel, which he owned the film rights to. When World War II broke out in 1939, MI7 told Seville to remain in America to continue working in Hollywood and insert pro-war and anti-Nazi messages into American cinema to try and rouse the then-isolationist nation. His role as a British agent was suspected, and in summer of 1941, he was called to testify before the Senate. Nothing came of the hearing, and he actually remained in Hollywood producing movies for the remainder of the war, but the controversy over the hearing overlapped with the release date of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, so Seville wasn't credited in the film in case the hearing brought bad press to the movie. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. So, after the film was completed, it was greeted with strong objections from the Hayes office, which demanded several cuts, specifically two shots of Hyde whipping the two female characters. <laughs> what? This will make, it'll make sense after you see the movie. And also to remove quotes from the Bible in the movie. I thought the Hayes office was all about the Bible. I think it's the context that the quotes were used in. Who cares about context? They're, they just worry about whether it's moral or not. MGM complied with all the cuts demanded. The film cost $1.14 million to make. Is that including buying the rights? No, because uh, that was, was $1.25 million to buy okay, those so rights. Okay, so this is just the actual production. That's right. And that $1.14 million made it twice as expensive as the original film, uh, and also makes it by far the most expensive horror movie we've seen thus far on the show. Okay. It opened in theaters on August 12th, 1941, and made $2.35 million at the box office, uh, making it a financial success. Wow. 
Critical response was mixed, however. While Bergman's performance was highly praised and she achieved her goal of being perceived as an actress with range, Tracy's performance was lambasted. Oh no! Famously, the New York Times said that Spencer Tracy's performance as Hyde is not so much evil incarnate as it is ham rampant. I'm so excited. Time magazine called the film pretentious and criticized Tracy and Fleming for, quote, refusing to play the story for its horror, end quote, and that only Bergman, quote, wrings credit from the tortured script, unquote. (laughs) Tracy... I I mean, that's what she wanted, right? So... Tracy, as we've mentioned, did manage to affect one major impact on the part, uh, which is that his American accent changed the way people said Jekyll forever after. Famously, Frederick March telegrammed Tracy to thank him for the biggest boost of his career. (laughs) And Tracy fell into a deep depression. Privately confessing to his friend Ralph Bellamy that he felt his career was over. But... That wasn't true, of course. He would be paired with Katherine Hepburn in his very next film, Woman of the Year, establishing the greatest professional and personal partnership of his life. And he would retain his extremely high reputation as an actor through such classic films as Father of the Bride, The Old Man in the Sea, Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's a lot! Yeah. That's a lot in there. There's a lot of famous people who did a lot of famous things and won a lot of Oscars involved in the production of this movie. Like, I, like I, I, I've said repeatedly, I know nothing really about this movie, but the idea, I'm totally with Spencer Tracy here. He, I don't see him as being able to do Jekyll and Hyde or Jekyll and Hyde or whatever. I mean, he's also like, his voice and his whole style is so... Bizarrely inappropriate for, like, a Victorian England upper-class doctor. Yeah, like, I like, don't even, know. even not thinking of Hyde, right? Like, yeah, I can't yeah. even see him as Jekyll. So the movies that I know Spencer Tracy from the most, like, I've seen quite a few of his movies, actually, if I were to, like, sit down and look at them, but the ones that ring, that come to mind are Adam's Rib, mm-hmm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Father of the Bride. Mm-hmm. And... You could argue that in those roles, he's playing variations on a theme. Mm -hmm. But in my head, he just seems very American. Mm -hmm. And that's not Jekyll. Yeah. He's also, like, generally pretty sweet-natured and usually always the good guy. Yeah. Even if, like, he plays very flawed good guys who sometimes make mistakes. Yeah. Yep. Okay, well, how are we watching this? Well, today, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is available on DVD as a double feature with the Frederick March version from Warner Home Video. Also, the film is available to stream on iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, and the PlayStation Video Store. Okay, folks, well, that means that if you head to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, you can find our video playlist and watch along with us and experience Spencer Tracy's Jekyll and Hyde. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we'll be right back after we've watched the film. See you on the other side.
Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. Sarah and I just finished watching Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1941, directed by Victor Fleming. What did you think, Sarah? I I don't know. Yeah, it's... It's weird. It's weird and it's tough. So, there's a, there's a quote that I can't stop thinking about in regards to this movie. From this movie? No. It's from The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You come at the king, you best not miss. And that's kind of my feel on this. Yeah, um, spoiler alert, it misses. Yes. Yeah. But it's very hard to sum up because it's not bad. It's not a bad or poorly made movie by any stretch of the means. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Even Spencer Tracy himself. Not bad. Yeah, he's not, like, phoning it in. He's not, like... I don't want to do this. And hey, it's just like, whatever. It's like, he's trying. He's giving a fine performance. It's not even a bad performance. It yeah. just doesn't he's, work. He's not suited. He's not He's not built to play villains. No. But, you know, it's funny, because at first I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, he's not meant to play villains. He's not expressing evil convincingly. I don't believe it. But by the end of the movie... Like, I kind of was. Like, once I spent enough time with his hide and got what his hide was trying to do, the problem is, what his hide is trying to do is not what this movie thinks it's making hide out to be doing. <laughs> I'll, uh, I might need a map to that sentence. I'll give you the map later. Let's... Okay, yeah, maybe we should, before you do that, tell me what the movie's about. Right. To if... be fair, we could just cut and paste what happens in the 1931. Very true. If you've seen the 1931 version, this movie follows it very closely. The thing that makes this movie interesting is when it veers off. And it often doesn't veer off in any kind of broad strokes. How it veers off is in little things and dialogue changes and performance changes and things like that. And those are the things that break the movie. So (laughs) we begin this time significantly in a church Mm -hmm. with a speech about how moral the Victorian age is. And I get where this is coming from, right? I get that it's trying to like set the scene of what the moral attitudes of the time were like. We go off the rails (laughs) near immediately when one of the congregation just starts yelling out random shit about how Victorian morals are hypocrisy uh, in the middle of the sermon. He gets taken out uh, of the sermon and brought to a hospital. Um, Dr. Jekyll's one of the people at the congregation. He sees this. He goes to the hospital to investigate this man. And apparently this man has what like we would, I think, now call something like PTSD. There was a gas main explosion and his mind is all rattled now because of it. And for some reason that's taking the effect of him yelling about how Christian morals are hypocrisy. And Jekyll decides, like, this guy is ideal for me to experiment with my theories on. And the guy who runs the hospital, the doctor who runs the hospital, is like, no. (laughs) No human experimentation. And Jekyll's like, shucks. Jekyll then goes to dinner with his uh, fiancé and his uh, father-in-law and all of their high-class friends. Soon-to-be father-in-law. Soon-to-be father-in-law and all of their high-class friends. And there's some stuff, some threads from the original 31 version here that are still here, but they don't 
really matter as much. Like, Jekyll's late to the dinner, and that's, like, a little bit scandalous, but it's not the really big deal that it was in the yeah, original. everyone just kind of goes like, Oh, yeah, yeah for like, sure, you're a doctor, it's fine. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff where the, the father-in-law, or the, the dad of his fiance is sort of miffed about how Jekyll displays affection in public towards his fiance, but that's honestly not the big problem here. The big problem here is Jekyll tells everyone at dinner his theories, uh, rather than in the original where he presented them at like a lecture at a college. Here he presents it over dinner to the fine members of society, and his theory is that everyone has good and evil in them, and that it would be much easier for man to be good if like basically chemically speaking we could just like purge the evil. That's what he's saying. And everyone takes great offense to this. Presumably, it seems what the movie's implying is that what they're offended by is the idea that everyone has evil in them. Yeah. Like, the notion of let's get rid of evil chemically, that's not really the thing that they have a problem with. The priest who's at the dinner does sort of raise a bit of a, aren't you tampering, where God has said man should not mean to go, blah da da the standard mad scientist kind of lines. But mostly it's the fact that nobody wants to admit that they're actually evil deep down inside. So Jekyll's prospective father-in-law is much offended by this. He doesn't want his daughter marrying, like, a pie-in-the-sky research scientist. He wants Jekyll to, like, open up, like, a general practice and, like, you know, be rake a family... Rake money in the way that you think doctors are supposed to rake in yeah, money. be a family doctor and just, you know, have respectable clients and all that kind of stuff. That's what's up here. Like, he doesn't necessarily not like Jekyll. He doesn't necessarily not want his daughter to get married to Jekyll. He wants his daughter to be happy. He just wants Jekyll to be respectable. So that sort of upsets Jekyll. And on the way home from this dinner with his good buddy Doc Lanyon, they come across a woman being attacked in the streets, and they rescue her, and it's Ingrid Bergman as Ivy, and she spots that he's clearly wealthy and is all like, oh, come back to my place. And he comes, you know, back to her place to take a look at her, um, which is some distance away now. It's like a cab ride away, because they agree to take her home. And he takes her upstairs, and he's going to, you know, look at her because he's a doctor, and was she hurt by this assault from this man? And no, she wasn't hurt at all, actually. It was all just kind of a ploy to get him upstairs. And she tries to kind of put the moves on him, and he's just having none of it. He's really, honestly just having none of it. He's very much trying to, I think, put his foot down, like, no, this is not what's happening. I'm only looking at you because I'm a doctor. I'm only, like, you know. And then she says, well, I, you deserve a fee, and she throws her arms around and kisses him. And of course, that's when Lanyon walks in. Now, in the original, Jekyll explains this to Lanyon by saying, oh, we'll just consider that my fee. He doesn't do that this time. He leaves, and he has a discussion with Lanyon where they discuss that maybe that moment of weakness where he let her kiss him is his evil side coming out uh, for a moment. But really, it's her throwing herself at him mm -hmm. more than anything. So this test subject that Jekyll wanted to use at the hospital, this crazy man, basically. He dies before Jekyll can get to him. He's figured out his serum and how to, it works. He's tested on animals successfully, but he's not soon enough. The man dies. So, out of kind of desperation, he decides, well, I'll just ch do it on myself then. It's very much a standard mad scientist thing of, I have a ridiculous theory, everybody thinks it's insane, I'll prove them wrong, you know, I'll show them, and the way I'm going to do it is test it on myself, because I can't wait any longer. So he tests it on himself, and he turns into Hyde. 
And a big difference here is we don't get an on-camera transformation sequence. We get kind of a Freudian montage of imagery that's meant to show us the moral conflict going on in Jekyll's soul. Now, it's <laughs> worth saying that in the original, there is something similar, mm -hmm. where the things that have been on Jekyll's mind are flashing to him. It's uh, the prospective father-in-law saying, oh, it, it sh you can't do such things, in regards to him mm -hmm. being affectionate with his fiance, And it's, you know, it isn't done, Lanyon telling him his theories are wrong, and there's Ivy saying, come back soon, and being a temptress. That's not what we get here. What we get here very clearly is a lot of Freudian sexual imagery about the one girl, uh, his fiancée, who's Beatrix in this version, versus Ivy in terms of sexual desire. That's what we're kind of getting here. It's not really specific, I would say. It's just kind of, oh, sexual desire bubbling to the surface is really what we're getting out of it. They're trying to show and not tell because Joseph Breen won't let them tell. Yeah. So he wakes up, and he's Hyde now. And in this version, Hyde is much more human than we've seen in previous iterations. He's much less monstrous. He's basically just Spencer Tracy with fake teeth and bushy eyebrows and kind of messy hair. That's basically it. He kind of looks like Lon Chaney from London After Midnight. Yes, I thought that exact same thing, Sarah. Yeah. Um, it's the teeth and the hat. Yeah, and the eyes, actually, because he has yeah, the big the wide eyes, yeah. And I will give it to them that, on the one hand, this makes more sense. Because if you have a Hyde who literally looks like he's not human, like he's a monster, I don't see how people could be having normal interactions with him. Yes. On the other hand, this Hyde looks and sounds way too much like Jekyll for anyone to really not understand that he's Jekyll. Listen, there's it's like the Superman Clark Kent thing. Totally. Right? Especially the way that Spencer Tracy carries himself differently. Totally. He does disguise his voice. Yeah, I totally. It's just for me it was like not enough difference. Sure. I did appreciate it because it wasn't inherently equating evil with bad looks. I mean, it still is because he does look worse as Jekyll. He just looks a little weird, but he doesn't look like an ape man. Sure. You know? So he, you know, turns back to Jekyll, and it's clear that this whole, you know, serum that's going to remove evil from me thing doesn't work. So, oops. However... Beatrix, uh, who's played by Lana Turner, gets a plot nightmare that tells her that Jekyll's in trouble. So she heads to his place in the middle of the night. And of course, this being Victorian times, a unescorted woman heading to a man's house in the middle of the night is just not okay. And her dad catches her at it, and he's furious, and he decides he's going to, if not break off the engagement, try to cool things down between these two rabbits by taking Beatrix on a continental trip to Europe. This sort of sends Jekyll into a bit of, you know, a depression over missing his girl. And his butler, Poole, ever-faithful Poole, suggests, like, why don't you go to a music hall and take in a show, basically. So he does, but as Hyde, for some reason. He goes to this music hall, and as I mentioned in the intro, Ivy has been changed from being a sex worker to essentially a barmaid. And this really changes, for me, the whole deal with Ivy. Yes, a hundred percent. Because in the original, when she was a sex worker at the music hall, she's clearly there 
to pick up men. And when Hyde arrives, he spots her and buys her a drink and has her come over, and it's all very, like, part of her deal. And the thing that's weird about him is just that he's, you know, a weird, hideous ape man. Here, Ivy's a barmaid, and she's not even allowed to leave the bar. There are other people going around serving drinks. And when Hyde spots her, he asks that she be the one to serve the drink that he's ordering. And they tell him, like, no, she's not allowed to do that. And he's like, fuck you, I'm rich. And so when she comes over, there's this whole thing where it's made clear that, like, all the men in this bar want her. Because as she's walking over to him, everyone's reaching for her. Everyone tries to get at her. And she gets over to him, and she's immediately weirded out by the fact that he's creeping on her. It's very different in the focus here. Mm -hmm. And things don't really go Hyde's way in terms of trying to get her to go with him. So he causes a bar fight. Yes, like a fucking <laughs> western. western. <laughs> <laughs> like, all chaos breaks out. And then Hyde takes the owner of the establishment aside and is like, all this chaos is Ivy's fault. They're fighting over her. You should fire her. And so he does because Hyde bribes him to. And then with Ivy off on the street, Hyde pulls up in his coach and is like, I see you're out of a job and have nowhere to go. Let me be your sugar daddy. And Ivy falls into the, you know, trapped in an apartment, unable to go anywhere or see her friends or anything abusive relationship that she has with Hyde in the original. Yes. Meanwhile, um, eventually, Jekyll's fiancé comes back, so he has no need to be Hyde anymore. Feeling guilty for what Hyde did to Ivy, he sends some money to Ivy. Um, uniquely, he doesn't send a note saying it's from him this time. And when she gets it, she's with some friends who are trying to tell her, like, leave Hyde. And it's very much your, your very realistic depiction of, you know, trying to get someone out of an abusive relationship where they can't leave because they're afraid of the repercussions from the abuser and the friends are concerned, but what can you do? And um, quite shockingly, honestly, for a movie in 1941, um, they do actually have Ivy right out say that she wants to kill herself. And so it comes to her friend to suggest you should see a doctor for, you know, your mental health, basically. And she just happens to go to Jekyll and realizes, like, oh, you're the, the doctor from before and you can save me and all this. And just like in the original, Jekyll promises her, like, you'll never see Hyde again. And she's relieved and she goes home. Now that Beatrix and her father are back, the father immediately agrees, like, yeah, you guys can get married right away. Everything's cool. Um, I won't postpone your happiness any longer. And in fact, he, he even seems okay with them kissing in a museum. And everything's looking, everything's coming up Jekyll. <laughs> and he's on his way to the um, dinner where they're going to announce the engagement. In the original, as in this version, he non-consensually turns into Hyde on the way there. In the original, this was set off by him seeing, I think it was a cat eating a bird in a tree? Yeah. And in this version, it's this thing where... When he's with Beatrix, they dance this waltz to this uh, song uh, that's very high class. And, of course, Ivy is associated with this particular song from the music hall when he first saw her. And he's trying to whistle the waltz, and he just keeps turning it into the polka song from the music hall. This is what changes him into Hyde. And so, turned into Hyde in the park, he goes to Ivy, and it's basically the same scene 
as the original. It's, yeah, it's even the same blocking with Ivy looking at herself in the mirror and the camera looking at the mirror and then Hyde coming in behind her so that we see him before she does. And, and one of the things about this movie that is one of those things where it would be fine if I hadn't seen the original is you don't see anything in this movie. When Hyde whips Ivy and she has these scars on her back that she shows people, we don't ever see them. The camera's always kept off them. Uh, we don't see Hyde strangle her. We don't see anything in this movie. It's all very much by implication. Hyde escapes, uh, as per usual, and just like in every version of this story, including actually the novel at this point, uh, he tries to get back into the laboratory, but Jekyll's gotten rid of the key, so he has to go to Lanyon, tell Lanyon to go to his house, gather up the stuff, bring it back to Lanyon's house, so bring it back to Lanyon's house so that Hyde can meet him there, mix the thing, take the thing, reveal to Lanyon that he's Jekyll. Lanyon's all, you've gone where God has not meant man to tread kind of deal. This is the highest blasphemy, I think he says. Yeah. There's a lot more focus in this version on Jekyll as the archetypal mad scientist breaking the limits of what men is meant to know thing than in previous versions. On religion specifically... Yeah, there's a lot more religion this time around, which, honestly, for a Cody or a film, doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So Jekyll promises he'll never do this again, and that he's going to go to Beatrix and explain everything. He goes to her, tells her they can't be together, and she collapses in a melodramatic crying heap. Uh, he goes to leave, but turns into hide, kind of halfway out the door, comes back, threatens her, dad shows up, comes to the rescue, hide, kills him, the cane on his... Uh, that he uses to beat him breaks and leaves the cane head behind. Hyde rushes off into the night with the police following him, gets back to Jekyll's house by crashing through the window like goddamn Batman. (laughs) Um, One of the other things about this is a lot of the action scenes with Hyde are pretty much the same kind of stuff we saw in the original, but I could have sworn it was actually Frederick March jumping around in the original, and it's very clearly a stuntman this time around. He makes it back and transforms back into Jekyll. Lanyon, of course, discovers the cane head, knows that that's Jekyll's, understands what's happened, leads the police right to the laboratory and says, like, there's your man. And we get sort of a unique thing this time around where uh, Jekyll is pleading to everyone that he's Dr. Jekyll and that he's done nothing wrong as he transforms into Hyde. Then after he transforms into Hyde, we get an action scene in the laboratory. Lanyon shoots him. He turns back into Jekyll. Uh, Poole comes down and starts doing the, like, Valley of the Shadow of Death prayer, and that's how the movie ends. The end. Yes. So it's... It's it's, it's practically a shot-for-shot shot remake. All the major scenes you remember from the 1931 version are in here. There's some small differences linking the, those major scenes, but it's practically shot-for-shot. Shot. Except that there's just enough changed that none of it works anymore. Yeah. This is this movie's such a great example of how storytelling, good storytelling is a house of cards that when you when you take one card away, the whole thing can collapse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very well made. It's very clear that everyone involved in making it was very talented. Yes. Um, all the acting performances, including Tracy's, are good. The cinematography is good. The direction is good. All the other behind-the-scenes attributes are good, just none of it comes together to work 
in service of anything. I was thinking a lot about Spanish Dracula, Mm. because it was similar in the sense where people are doing the same blocking, the same shots, and (laughs) the same scripts, like, for the most part. Um, And we didn't like Spanish Dracula, because it had no soul. Yeah. And this film, again, has no soul. It's a facsimile. Yes. It, it's it's funny because, like, there there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but... 100% credit to the crew, the actors, everyone involved. Everyone's doing their best, and, like, they're doing a good job. But what you get the feeling of is that no one believes in this movie. This yeah. is just work. This is a day at the office. And it just so happens that every single person in this movie is so good at what they do, like, the movie doesn't come across as, you know, uh, meaningless or incompetent, but no one in making this movie has anything to say. Mm. No one is invested in making this movie. MGM decided they were going to remake Jekyll and Hyde, they assigned these people to the job, and then those people did that job. Yeah, and I think the doesn't have anything to say thing is really integral to why this feels like it doesn't have any soul. Like, yeah. it's, they're just, you know, reading the lines. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like a high school play. Yes. Where, like, you could, like, I have been in some really good high school plays in my life, and I've seen some really good high school plays in my life, but at the end of the day, when you see a high school student reading Hamlet, no matter how good he is, he's not Hamlet. He's a 15-year-old pretending he's Hamlet. And that's sort of how I felt here. Ingrid Bergman's great. Spencer Tracy's great. Lana Turner's great. They're all great, but they're all giving very good performances and nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. Ingrid Bergman is a great actress, and in this movie, she's a great actress. Yes. But Miriam Hopkins was Ivy. Yes. That's the difference. These are just people putting on a show and it's a good show, but that's all it is, you know? Yeah. Um, kind of going back to the House of Cards thing and making Ivy no longer a sex worker, mm-hmm. kind of causing that House of Cards to fall. Mm-hmm. Hopkins as Ivy, you could believe that she would fall into this trap yeah. because of the like very dangerous, vulnerable position that sex workers often find themselves mm-hmm. in. Um you're just at the mercy of the person who is, who has hired you. Like, yeah. you can be screwed over so easily. Yes. Um, Bergman, like, Ingrid Bergman did a great job acting. I don't want to discredit her in any way. But, like, there's no reason for her character to go with him. Yeah. Like, she's just kind of going along with him because the plot kind of tells her to. Yes. There is a sense of the, like fuck, I just lost my job, like, now what do I do? Um, this guy has money, okay. But even as soon as she's in the carriage, she's like, no, I don't want this. Like, there's no feeling of... Here's the thing. There's no feeling <laughs> of consent in this movie in any part of the way. Okay. And let me finish. Yeah, I have because, to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so, like, I have to go back to the 1931 movie because Frederick March and Rose Hobart are closer in age. Yes. So it feels like they are both, like, gung-ho about getting married. They are both relatively older, 
like, in the sense of, like, they're not fresh out of high school wanting to get married and fuck. They're, like... They've been waiting a while. And they're ready Mm -hmm. to do things. So it feels like they're on the same level. With Lana Turner being, like, 18 or 20, Mm -hmm. and Spencer Tracy being 40, like, it's not so much a feeling of, like, oh, great, they got the young starlet to go with the aging guy. It just... Spencer Tracy's too old for this role. Lana Turner's a bit too young for yes. this particular role. We talked about in the intro why Lana Turner's playing this role. Mm-hmm. Like so It's th- neither of them's fault. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. And it comes off a little bit like she's being groomed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like Okay, I didn't I, I didn't get that, but I can see, I can see where you would get that. I just didn't feel it myself personally. And it's also just like she's very young and naive, mm-hmm. right? So they don't feel like they're on equal levels anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not that same feeling as like, like sure, maybe she's consenting in words, but it doesn't feel like the kind of consent that we saw with Rose Hobart and Frederick March being closer in age and yeah, stuff. They don't feel like equals. I think there's nothing sinister, at least for me, in watching Jekyll's scenes with his fiance. Totally. But But you're right that like, ends up not working. It, it Honestly, when I watched the film, my brain didn't interpret Jekyll as being older because Tracy was older. Like, it didn't come across as the, like, middle-aged man with the young fiancé thing. It felt like Jekyll was still supposed to be 25 or something, and that Tracy was just, you know, playing this character who's supposed to be way younger. Like, when you go to a Romeo and Juliet show at the theater and they have, like, 40-year-old actors playing Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah, when they're supposed to be 15. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then with Bergman, like, because she's... Like, you, you explain this in the synopsis. Because she's not actively searching for someone to fuck mm-hmm. because that's her job, maybe I shouldn't be so crass with no, saying No, no, that's fine. Fuck, but, like... They don't feel it. Honestly, you know those stories of like lady barista mm-hmm. having to like feign friendliness to the creeper yeah. because it's her workplace. That's the position she's in. Yes, and the movie has to have her jump through a like the movie has to contort the plot a little bit more to get her into his web. So I need to be really careful with what I'm about to say. Okay. Because it's going to come across victim blamey, but it's the only way I can think of to articulate the essential difference here. So that's my disclaimer. In a way, especially when you consider it's a movie from 1931, the situation Ivy gets herself into is kind of a, in a little bit, like a be careful what you wish for. That's what's going on. She's looking for a rich John and she gets one. Oh no, he's far more worse than you wished he would be. That's the situation. So it's there's a little bit of a sense of like she got herself into that predicament. And yes, it's a bad predicament, but it was a, as you were saying earlier, like a risk of her profession. So Ivy's a bad girl. That's the role. She's the bad girl. I never really felt that Ingrid Bergman was a bad girl. Like, there's the thing where she's trying to get on to Jekyll when he doesn't want to at the start, but that's really as far as her being a bad girl goes. Ingrid Bergman's character here is a poor girl mm-hmm. where a bunch of terrible stuff happens to her that's completely out of her control and she can do nothing about it to save herself and it's just one awful thing after another and don't we feel sorry for her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction. 
poor girl versus bad girl. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I want to talk about the soul. Okay, sure. All right, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, when they're at the dinner party in the beginning, and this is the point where Jekyll kind of, like, embarrasses his future father-in-law with um, kind of going on about his work mm-hmm. to people, and people are, like, kind of shocked. In the beginning of the movie, we have specifically Victorian morality mm-hmm. being invoked and very explicitly tied to the religious sense of the soul. Yes. Because it's the pastor talking about it, or the father, or whatever you would call it. The them. priest, yeah. The priest. And at this dinner table, it's all the high-class, like, mm-hmm. like stereotypical Victorian high-class <laughs> type of people. And at one point, when they're talking about, like, separate, separating the good from the evil, this one rich person... Um, go says something along the lines of like, I just don't get it. Just don't do bad things, and then you won't be evil. Yeah. Like something along those lines. And I think that's the moment, and it, it happens so early too. I think that's the moment where the movie loses me. Okay. Um, because it's just such a gr- deep misunderstanding of what causes what this movie's calling evil. Mm-hmm. Um. What causes crime, poverty, cycles of violence. In the 1931 movie, it's not talking about it explicitly, but it continues the ties of alcoholism and addiction with the transforming into Hyde. Mm -hmm. Um, How sex work leads to cycles of violence. How addiction and poverty and all of that can lead to domestic violence. All these things. And it's not being explicit like taking out a, a screen and putting a PowerPoint and, and stick on to be like, see, this is what happens. It's but not it's phantom just, carriage about it. Yeah, yeah, but it's fucking there. Yeah. And this movie takes all of that out as if it, it sanitizes itself. And it tries to keep the <laughs> fucking plot line, but it, it has no meaning yep. for me anymore because it's like... The reason why we love the 1931 is because I know that this title goes with Murder in the Zoo, but it's a horror close to home of, like, seeing there. And that's also why Phantom Carriage rings so high. And this version, this 1941 version, just sanitizes itself from it. So that's where it loses its soul. Yeah. I think you've, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. And there's a different part of the movie that did the same thing for me. Mm. But... It's the same nail. We're hitting the same nail. Well, because well the, tell me your hammer. So, you are 100% right that the thing that kills this movie is that it sanitizes itself, but keeps the plot. Yeah. Because that's what doesn't work anymore. You can't change the theme of a movie and keep the same plot. Because those things need to walk hand in hand. Now, I do, before I want to get into my hammer, talk a little bit about... Victorian morality and the soul for just a second. Cool. So this is a mistake this movie makes in how it addresses its themes because of the fact that the theme and the plot are mismatched, right? It makes sense that you're going to attack the upper class, and it makes sense that the thing they're offended by in Jekyll's presentation is the idea that someone could be good and evil because they don't want to admit that they themselves are evil underneath, right? That all makes sense, the, th- the line that threw you off where it was the woman saying, like, 
Well, I don't understand. Like, someone chooses to be evil or they choose to be good. Like, if you do bad things, you're evil. That's what makes you one or the other. I think what that line was trying to get across, I think what they were trying to say, is that the thing that Jekyll's doing that's bad is taking away free will from people. Taking away the choice to be good or to be evil. Essentially, he's lobotomized. Like, if because his mm. idea is he's trying to... He's not... Because that's the key difference. The 1931 Jekyll was trying to split good and evil into two different people so that the evil person could go off and do all the base instinct stuff and the good person could go off and be a saint. 41 Jekyll is trying to purge the evil entirely chemically. So he's basically lobotomizing people is what he wants to do. So that's what they're objecting to. They're saying, well, no, people have to have choice. That's what that line's about. I totally did not pick that up. Right. That's a bit of a eugenics thing, hey? Right. And the reason you didn't pick it up is because it's attached to the same plot as the 1931 version, which is about a totally different thing. (laughs) Um... Okay, this is making things a lot make a lot more sense. I still stand by my like. No, you're totally right. Still, yeah. <laughs> but I just wanted to give some background on like the psychology of what's going on. Cool, here. It, that helps me understand it a bit better. Cool. So, here's my thing with this movie. Watching it is really interesting because the the stuff that's the most different is at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. It gets closer and closer to the original as the running time goes on, right? To the point where, as you said, by the end, it's basically a shot-for-shot remake. But it's not for, like, the first 20 minutes or so. Yeah. You know? And then it dovetails. And in my opinion, where this movie went wrong is it should have changed more. Because every single thing in the original version, and the 1931 version, worked together towards a singular artistic statement. Each part was part of the whole Everything was working together, whether it was the makeup choices, the cinematography, the visual symbols, the uh, acting, the um, script, the dialogue. Everything worked together to say one message. And so by trying to stick as closely as possible to the 1931's model, while changing or at least obfuscating what the story's about, the movie just totally falls apart because the various parts are no longer in that harmony with each other, right? What they should have done is just, if they wanted to do Jekyll and Hyde, like it's a public domain novel, they spent $1.25 million to have the rights to copy a movie that they weren't allowed to copy. (laughs) Like, you could have saved $1.25 million by taking your public domain novel and just starting from scratch, from the ground up, right? Like, so for me, and I totally agree with you, the fact that the focus has gone from being on basically the primal and the sexual to like the soul or whatever breaks the movie. But that for me, the thing that really broke it was um, that they changed Jekyll's motivation. They changed his fundamental reasons for why he's doing what he's doing in the 31 movie. Jekyll wanted to be free of his primal instincts of his animal urges so that he wouldn't be tempted by them. Mm-hmm. He wanted to basically split off his horniness into a different person <laughs> so that he wouldn't be in agony with how long he had to wait to get married. He experiments on himself because that's his solution to his problem, right? It's a much more human or um, intimate relationship with the character rather than him trying to like solve a societal problem you you understand where he's coming from you get it you can say oh in my situation i might do the same there's a little bit of that in this one with like the oh i want to have sex with my wife and i can't yet 
but it's so toned down. It's so extremely toned down that it's barely there. So you can't really call it the driving force of the movie anymore. Instead, 1941 Jekyll is seeking to eliminate the evil from man. Uh, essentially, he's trying to cure evil. And he only is experimenting on himself as a last resort because his test subject died, right? You know, it, it goes from the experiment being the solution to his problem to the experiment being the problem. Because in this movie, the dad doesn't disapprove of him because he's too horny. He disapproves of him because he's doing experiments. Yeah. So the solution to Jekyll's problem is to just not. And he still does. Mm-hmm. For reasons. Question mark. <laughs> and then the other thing is... In the original, he becomes Hyde, so he realizes that the the drug isn't going to split him into two people. It's going to turn him into the other thing. But it makes sense that he keeps doing it because he needs an outlet for those urges. And he can express that as Hyde because he's a different person than Jekyll. In this version, he's trying to purge evil, and he turn, you know it turns out the serum makes him evil. So why does he keep doing it? Yeah. Right? Yeah, after he gets Ivy in the apartment, he just continually stays Hyde. Yeah, and why does he even go out to see Ivy in the first place? Because the thing is, is the 1931 Jekyll was legitimately tempted by Ivy. You know, it's on his mind. She's seducing him. Come back soon and all that, right? And that dovetails with the sexual frustration that he's having from his fiance. It's a very human motivation. You know, if you had a girlfriend who you were in love with, but she... Uh, you know, wants to wait until marriage, and meanwhile, you've got some other girl over here who's, like, coming on to you really strong at a party, right? And, oh, do I give in to that temptation or not? It's a very understandable thing. But 1941 Jekyll is way more the paragon of virtue, which, again, makes sense. It's a postcode film, right? So our hero has to be so upright and moral. But he's so upright and moral that you go, well, then why do you want to make a potion that makes you evil? That doesn't make sense. And he he resists Ivy so much in that scene with her that when she kisses him, it comes across less as, you know, a momentary lapse, giving into temptation. It really, to me, felt more like a sexual assault. Like, <gasps> like because he, does, he clearly doesn't want it, and she just throws herself on him. Like, it gets that far. And so the reason he goes to see her as Hyde in this version is basically just because he's bored. Yeah. It's for something to do. It's because the plot needs to keep going, right? His girl's out of town. What do I do? Uh, I'll go to a party, I guess. Yeah. There's a lot of other parts of the movie that fall apart as the result of this. Um, The dad is, in the original, like, the representation of everything that's antagonizing Jekyll. Because he's this big fuddy-duddy. His whole thing is, you have to wait to get married. And the reason you have to get wait to get married is because that's when I got married to my wife. And it has to be the anniversary. And blah, blah, blah. And it's this whole thing where he's this unreasonable, stick-up-his-ass jerk. And so, because he's the representation of all of Jekyll's repression, and Hyde is Jekyll's repression let out, when Hyde kills him at the end... That's why that's the climax of the movie, even though, you know, for someone, you know, I totally understand why for you, him killing Ivy feels more like the climax. There's a reason plot-wise why it's killing the dad. In this version, the dad's problem with Jekyll is that he's doing research instead of being a reasonable, like, family doctor. And so all Jekyll had to do to get his approval was to just not do his research. And he's not really that big antagonist because eventually... He's like, oh, yeah, you guys can get married soon. And he has really no problem with them kissing in the museum and stuff. He seems like he's a nice guy 
who just, because he's an upper-class rich person, has to put on certain airs, and Jekyll's embarrassing him. That's really the extent (laughs) of it, right? So when Hyde kills the dad this time, it just kind of feels like another incident. It's here because it has to be because it's the thing that leads the cops to him at the end, right? And there's no weight to it. No! He... He just pushes him down the stairs, and then he beats him up, and it has the same problem that all the other violence has in this movie, which is that we don't really see it. It's it's all off-camera or between cuts. And they don't say that he's dead. Yeah, it's they just implied. Yeah, like, they don't say, you attacked him. They're just like, Jekyll, you have to give yourself up. Yeah, everything in this movie is implied, right? Yeah. A lot of this movie plays that way, there, where things just happen... Because they happened in the 31 version, and that's what we're remaking. You know, you you said pretty much the same thing earlier, right? Yeah, so let's talk about implication, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that you'll hear old-timey movie fans talk about is that what they love about those movies is that Cody-era films had to become sort of expert in implying what they could not say explicitly. So what people tend to like is, like, cracking that, that secret code, right? Like... You know, saying like, oh yeah, you can tell that John Wayne in The Searchers is in love with his brother's wife just by the way that those characters are looking at each other in the first scene of that movie, even though there's no dialogue to that effect, right? Everyone will go on about how brilliant that is. But when the thing that you have to imply instead of say is the entire point of the movie... The entire theme... That kind of sinks the movie, no matter how well you made the movie. Yeah, no matter how much money you put onto it and how good your actors are. It's just stuff happening on a screen. Yeah, because you couldn't say in dialogue what they want the movie to be about. The closest they can get is the weird Freudian montages, and I have a feeling like... You you were laughing at them because they were so ridiculous, right? Yes. And at one point, Ingrid Bergman's head is a cork coming out of a bottle. And there's another point where uh, her body is um, overlaid with like a picture of an explosion behind it, like a literal, <laughs> like like it's so it's so We're, train okay. going into a tunnel level symbolism. Yeah, think of that versus like the end of the 1931 version where it ends with like a boiling pot just like simmering down like yeah. that imagery versus mm-hmm. what the heck we got here yeah yeah exactly exactly um and i think the reason why they're so over the top is because they're the only chance the movie has to tell you what the movie's about but the fact that they're so over the top makes them seem to come out of nowhere, because the movie doesn't build up to that in any way, right? The movie tells you Jekyll's motivation is getting rid of evil, he is a mad scientist who is going where man is not supposed to go, and he's taking the drink on himself because his test subject died and he needs to test it on somebody. That's what the movie tells you. And then the montage is like, sexual repression! Yeah, which is what the 31 version was about, right? So you can tell that the people making this movie knew what the story was about. They just weren't allowed to say it. So they're trying to find other ways, and it just comes off as fucking ridiculous. So here's, here's the, the epiphany I came to about this movie. Okay. This movie can't be about the thing it wants to be about. It has to bury 
all of its true being under this veneer of respectability because it's a Cody or a movie. This movie <laughs> is Henry Jekyll. <laughs> this is Henry Jekyll in movie form. Sure. <laughs> the thing that's wild about it is you were you were totally right, and I didn't even think about this, but you were totally right in identifying that the connection between Jekyll's transformations into Hyde and like alcohol addiction, like the one being the allegory for the other, is totally gone. Like it's just gone in this movie. Yeah. Like what's interesting is I think the abuse storyline, like the stuff about abusive relationships is still here. Oh, definitely. And still works. I think Ivy as a character still works. I think her arc still works. I think Bergman's portrayal of an abused woman and the way the script portrays abused women, you know, the problem is her dilemma and her plight no longer feel attached to the rest of the movie. Yeah. Because the movie isn't about sex and abuse and violence and repression and Hyde being this expression of all these negative things that are boiled up inside Jekyll anymore. The movie's not about that. So Ivy's storyline is just a thing, a bad thing for Hyde to do. Hyde is bad, so we need we need to show him doing bad things. This is the bad thing that he does, yeah. right? Like that's what it it kind of becomes. And and what's so sad about that is like Spencer Tracy was an alcoholic. Yeah, it could have it could have been really fucking powerful, man. And it's it just doesn't go there. You know, in this movie, evil isn't the savage animal and man. If this movie is telling me anything about what evil is, it's saying that evil is an asshole. <laughs> Evil's being an asshole. Evil's being a sadistic bastard. Evil's being cruel for its own sake. And and that's fine. That's a decent expression of what evil is. But because it doesn't connect to the sex and abuse, the movie isn't saying anything with that. Mm-hmm. Right? It's You aren't really making a statement if you tell me that e- being evil is being a jerk. Yeah. Right? Ivy's arc is still the most powerful part of the movie, but it's just here to give an actress a juicy role to play. That's why it's here. Yeah. I think if, like, it makes so much sense that MGM wanted to purge the original movie from existence. Because I really feel like if you didn't have the original movie to compare this to, I would probably walk away being suitably convinced this is a good movie. Because it's so well made and the performances are good, as we keep saying, everyone making this movie was competent and talented and they had a million dollars to make this movie. It was an A picture. They had the time and money, right? Like, they can easily fool you into thinking this is a good movie. But we have a nearly identical movie to compare it to that is good. And so you can hone in with, like, laser precision on what makes it work versus doesn't, because so much is the same. You just have to go, what's the one thing that's different? Oops, turns out that was, like, the Jenga piece to make the whole thing come down. And the thing is, is I should never be watching a movie and have it remind me of how good this other thing is, because then I just want to go watch that other thing. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, I love that you brought up the boiling pot, right? Like, in the 31 version, Jekyll has this boiling pot in his fucking witch's brew-ass laboratory. (laughs) And it's this visual metaphor, because the pot boils over when he decides to become Hyde. And then, yeah, it goes down to a simmer when he dies at the end, and stuff like that. And that's a stylistic flourish, Mm -hmm. right? 
But even in the 31, even the stylistic flourishes worked to further the story. Like another example would be the numerous POV shots in the 31 version, right? Where you are Jekyll. That's a, that's a director showing off, but (laughs) it also is part of the themes and the plot and the story, right? The 41 version has stylistic flourishes, but most of the stylistic flourishes in it exist just because everyone involved was very good at their job and had the time and money to throw in stylistic flourishes. Most of them don't really say anything additional about the story. Like, there's a cool thing where when he takes the um, concoction for the first time, they drop out all sound effects and just have the music, and it's neat, and you notice it, and you go, that's cool, but what does that actually say about Jekyll and Hyde? Nothing. No. It doesn't say anything, right? No. This is the thing about stories. In good ones, all the pieces fit. If you're going to start swapping them out, you might as well just change the whole thing. Otherwise, this is what you end up with. A movie that is bad, not because anyone making it wasn't good, but because it just doesn't know what story it's telling. Yeah. It lost its soul. (sighs) So... Uh, so ranking, yeah? Ranking. Okay, so I think um, despite how totally much I tore this movie apart, you're maybe going to be surprised at what my range is. Sure. Well, I can guarantee you it's going to be below the 1931. Yes, true. So my floor is number 21. <laughs> yeah, cool. Keep talking. Yeah, I know. I know it's high. But, like, I was looking, and, like, here's my problem. Here's my problem, Sarah, and it's the same problem we've been talking about this whole time. This movie doesn't work, but this movie's not bad. Yeah. Like, it's very well made. There's a lot of talent and skill on display here. Regardless of the fact that they've taken the soul out of the story, it's the performances are all amazing, the directing is very good, it's super stylish, it looks great, you know, it's exciting, it's edited well, like, it's not, there's nothing, the only complaint we have with this movie is that they fucked up on the theme, and that's not their fault, the theme is not allowed under the code. Yeah. So, I couldn't say that, like, The Devil Commands was better, because, like, at the end of the day, like, The Devil Commands is a cheap columbia b movie that's trying really hard to be like rebecca mixed with frankenstein and is just like what the fuck are you doing so that's that's why i ended up so high so that's that's my floor what's your ceiling 15 which is mad love and i'll i'll tell you how i ended up there because you know i really like the walking dead and i really like family opera which are below that and i really like vampire which is even more below that So I'm not saying we put it at 15, but this was the highest I could argue myself up on it. And it's because Mad Love is also a remake that completely missed the point of the original. Now, I will give Mad Love credit. In its case, they replaced that point with a different, completely unrelated point, which is what this movie failed to do. It took out the point without really having anything else to back it up. But the the movies felt comparable to me in that way, in that, like, Mad Love is also very well made. It's also an MGM movie. And, you know, it, it felt like a really well-made horror film that just didn't know what the story was about. 
right? So that they, they felt comfortable enough in my mind that I, I kind of linked them there. But I was like, there's no way this is better than Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So I kind of just, or Nosferatu. So I kind of just stopped there. So that's my range, 15 to 21. Where were you looking? Exactly the same. Oh, dope! High five! <laughs> I thought you were giving me faces where I thought it was, was going to be way low. I was trying so hard not to, like, way like low. give off anything. So I started at Mad Love mm-hmm. because the creeper who won't leave you alone. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of where I started. And I was like, but Mad Love is way better. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of shimmied on down. And then I kind of landed at Man Who Changed His Mind. And I had to look it up because I couldn't remember which, which one Which fucking was. one it is. Um, that's the one where... It's the brain transplant one. Exactly. And we have, like, a kick-ass lady and, like, whatever, and it's from the UK. Like, it's really good. Yeah. And then below that is Devil Commands. So that's where I ended up because I was like, Devil Commands, no. This movie's better than that. Um, the only reason why I was, like, not sure about Man Who Changed His Mind is because um, the women in this movie are, like, so set in what they have to do. Yeah. The... It, I was really just feeling, like, with Lana Turner, like, she's doing, like, a great job with Beatrix here, but I really wish Beatrix actually had something to do. Yeah, no one has any agency in this movie, right? Like, it's funny because the fiancé in the 31 version does the exact same stuff plot-wise, but... The older actress makes her feel like she's more of a person. Exactly. Like, they do the same thing, but somehow when the fiancé in the original argues to her dad on Jekyll's behalf, it feels like it has some force behind it. It feels like she's really sticking up for him. Whereas when uh, Lana Turner does it, it kind of feels like... You know, like a teen girl whining to her dad, like, why can't I get a pony? Like, it doesn't have any real force behind it, right? And then you have Ivy, who again, like, as we said, in the original, she kind of gets herself into the problem. And then, you know, she can't get out because that's how abusive relationships are. Whereas Ingrid Bergman's Ivy is just a complete, you know, tool of fate, right? She, it's not, she does nothing in this movie. Things just happen to her. Ironically, for a movie where the theme is supposedly about, like, removing choice from someone. So here's something else with this versus Man Who Changed His Mind that we haven't even addressed yet, but when I think about this versus that movie, kind of comes up. Okay. What's the horror in this movie? <laughs> if this is horror, which I think, like, we're, we're agreeing it is, what is it? Honestly, I would argue corruption of the soul. Good. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, Because, like, we didn't mention this, but as the movie goes on, Hyde is becoming more and more gross-looking, like, decrepit. Like, as if he's decaying. It reminded me of Picture of Dorian Gray, Mm -hmm. the way you see that that painting at the end. Now, they did do something similar in the 31, where his features get more and more beast-like as he goes. Yeah. So it's a similar idea. But I, I get what you mean... Um, because he actually looks like he's decaying, like the way his skin is looking. And yeah, the fact that like, we, we talked about how like, why does he drink the potion? Why does he keep turning into Hyde if it's not about sex? It's because he's bored. Right. You know, girl isn't in town. What do I do? I guess I'll go abuse my other girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, yeah, the, the corruption. He, oh, 
we get the the title drop of Paradise Lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, when Hyde just name drops Paradise Lost, I don't know where I was like, oh, someone went to college. <laughs> yeah, but if you think about, like, if we're going back to, oh, he's taking choice away from yeah, these God people. And, yeah. and, and all this stuff, like, that, that would maybe be it. Right. You know, it's muddy. I'll, I'll totally agree with you, because I think me watching the movie, the most effective the movie got in terms of tugging at any kind of emotional reaction to me that was not just left over from the 31 version was making me really feel sorry for Jekyll at the end. You know, really making it seem like a big... Like, that the horror was, you know, him transforming against his will. And I think it was a really... If there's one thing this movie does that's smart... It's that they let him talk while he's transforming at the end. Even if it's something that means that the, like, lapse dissolves don't quite look good. Because all the other transformation sequences we've ever seen, it's sort of like he goes into a fugue state. And here, having him be really, like, aware and conscious while it's happening really gives it a, um, a body horror feel that it doesn't have. Where, you know, your agency is being taken away and you're transforming into something else. So I would agree that that fits in with the corruption of this whole thing. That basically what we're both saying is that the horror is from Jekyll's POV, right? It's, yeah. it's the same kind of Wolfman or man-made monster horror of losing your humanity, right? So the reason why I'm bringing all this up is because I feel like there's more overt horror in The Man Who Changed His Mind with the brain swapping and the, like, I'm not in my own body thing and, you know, the thing about, like, where... They chase the wrong guy, and he dies at the end falling out the window and stuff because he was in the wrong body. And, you know, there's just there's just a lot more sinister stuff going on. And that movie had such, like, a black sense of humor, too, with, like, the guy who becomes the big rich CEO and takes advantage of it and stuff. There was just something a little more sinister. There was a little more bite to that movie. There's not a lot of bite in this movie. This is a very soft movie. Honestly? Man Who Changed His Mind is just more fun. Yeah, oh, so it's, yeah. it's fun. Yeah, cool. So I, I'm happy with putting this right there. below that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm cool with that because, like, you know, I think we were both right in identifying this range, but, like, ah, you're probably not talking me up above, like, Va Phantom of the Opera or The Walking Dead on or this one. Or even Vampire, if we're talking corruption of the soul. Yeah, because Vampire was an that. entire movie artistically made to service that idea, and this is a movie that is talking about corruption of the soul by stealing the plot from a movie about, you know... Sex. Yeah. Going into the list at number 21, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1941, directed by Victor Fleming. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde, number one on the list. Undefeated champion. Undefeated. Ding, 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 ding. Um, Ten years running, 60 episodes exactly. Wow. Because uh, it was number 27, and this is episode number 87. Yeah, that's neat. Um, K.O. <laughs> yeah, so you can go to our website and look at other, listen to other episodes. There you can also find an appeals box if you would like to... Take a run at an argument to argue that this Jekyll and Hyde is better than the 1931. Have at her. Go to the Tumblr ask box or send us an email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or yell at us on Twitter. Love it. 
at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can leave us a rating or a review on those services where and when they allow it. Those things help other people find the show due to internet algorithms. Another way you can help out the show is by telling a friend about us, whether that's on social media or in MeetSpace. Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow. It's the most effective form of advertising. Another way you can help us out is by helping us out monetarily by going to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons get thanked on the show and at the $5 level getting access to bonus audio cut from previous episodes and that's every week that a new one of those drops. And at the $10 level you get access to horror short stories that I write that are nowhere else that drop once a month. What are we watching next week, Ben? Oh, Sarah, the hits just keep on coming, and they don't stop coming. Next week, (laughs) we are watching the classic Universal Studios horror film, The Wolfman. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. Mm. and Claude Rains, and also in a very small role, Bella Lugosi. Excellent. This is one of my favorite movies, guys. I'm so excited. So join us next week for that, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.